Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. And as you do, uh, I want to invite you to uh, find a copy of God's Word. Uh, maybe you brought one with you. You can go ahead and pull that out. If you got one on your phone, that works too. Um, or if you want to, you should be able to find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a copy of uh, Scripture, then you are welcome to take that home. That's our gift to you. But we want to get into God's Word this morning. And uh, we are continuing in our series in Hebrews. You can find the book of Hebrews. Begin making your way there. I'm going to meet you in chapter 7. Uh, but to kind of like set the stage for us a little bit, uh, you know, being Father's Day and all, I was thinking about some of the memories I have with my dad and, and uh, some of the things that we did kind of growing up and, and uh, you know, just some of the things that stick out um, in, uh, in just my, my childhood years uh, with him. And uh, one of the things that we loved doing as, uh, as a family was camp. And uh, I don't know if, um, if you are a camping family or not. We want to be a camping family. Uh, we have not. We have all the stuff for it. We were a camping family before there were kids. Um, but uh, since our kids have come along, we keep waiting uh, for them to, you know, not, that, like, for the longest time, it was like, we just, we don't want to go camping with a baby. But then there kept being babies, you know. So now it's like, it's been a while um, that we've had. We were, growing up, we were a camping family and um, loved uh, fishing. We would often go camping near the Mississippi, and we'd spend all night kind of trying to fish for catfish, and and um, and then we'd uh, be playing board games and everything. But I, I always remember the fire, and uh, you know, being around that fire, and, and nothing's better than you know, kind of a cool Wisconsin summer night, and that that fire sort of you know flickering. But then you'd get up in the morning, right, and and uh, hopefully um, you know the the fire had had just sort of dwindled, or you kind of you know at least got it to a, a good spot before you went to bed. But then it was always that challenge. I don't know how you did it in your house if you were camping, but we always wanted to get the fire going again without using a new match. Right, and so uh, we'd sort of, uh, you know, kind of like start looking to see, you know, what coals are left. Is there anything sort of smoldering under there? And and sure enough, usually there we'd find a couple. And so you kind of, you know, baby that thing back uh, to life. And so you, you kind of reveal that, blow a little bit on it, maybe put some um, some little little pieces of, of kindling, and then some bigger ones. And and so the goal was, is could we get that fire going again, uh, and not have to like rebuild the whole thing from scratch. And a little bit of what's happening in the book of Hebrews is I wanted to share that picture with you that you would just have that of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do with the people he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish believers. And in a sense, what's happened in their life is the fire has sort of dwindled a little bit. And for some of them, it's because there was a rainstorm the night before. No one loves camping in the rain. Um, the number of times that I've camped in the rain um, are uh, more than I'd like to count, right? And, and nobody, nobody looks forward to that. If you do, um, we need to uh, have a chat. I don't know that that's, there's, <laughs> there's something that's off if you like camping in the rain. But, but you know, we, I've been there. I've, when we wake up and then that fire is wet, and that's way, way harder to get going, right, than if it's just kind of you know, went, went down, but, but what's happening in the life of this small church, probably near or in Rome, is that the fire is dwindling, and, and it's to the point of going out in the hearts of some people. And so what the author is trying to do is trying to rekindle uh, this passion, this excitement, this desire for the Lord. He wants to build into the church uh, this, this fire of uh, of, of just understanding of who Jesus is. And that's the way that he's rekindling this fire is he's putting back on the fire uh, some more fuel and the fuel is a better picture of who Jesus is. And so we've called this series, um, the, the kind of subtitle is Jesus is Better. 
And at every turn, the author is kind of putting another log on or adding some more kindling or sort of blowing into the, the fire. And, and he's trying to get the, the excitement going again for the people because they've forgotten who and just how great Jesus is. And so this morning, it's no different for us as we arrive again at another passage, and uh, we've been waiting for this one for a little bit. We've gotten some kind of previews, but this morning is all about this guy, um, or it's kind of all pertaining to this guy who's named Melchizedek. And uh, I just want to make sure that you're in good company this morning. Even as I say that name, you're like, oh man, did we pick the right, uh, the right Sunday to come? Like this sounds already like a little bit uh, maybe heady or boring or whatever it was. But just to kind of like make sure we're in good company this morning, um, show of hands, if, uh, if you would say that you would feel a little shaky if I was to give you the mic for five minutes and you could come up and just kind of give your best presentation of who Melchizedek is and why it matters for us today. Show of hands if that, if that does not sound like something that you are ready or equipped to do. Maybe I should do it the opposite way. Let's see which hand goes up because I would love to see uh, what you've got. Listen, if your hand was not up on that, then um, fantastic. Maybe we should chat afterwards, see how, how this goes. But my hand was up on that. All right? Like before this week. Okay, not to... <laughs> I feel pretty confident at this point, but it's taken some time to get there. Okay, I've been studying this week. I've been looking at this passage. Why? Because this is kind of an obscure name, an obscure figure that we're coming to this morning. You're going to see, like, there's not a whole lot of airtime that's given to Melchizedek apart from this chapter. And so it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal with this guy, Melchizedek? Uh, we were uh, riding to the church this morning, and I had my oldest daughter with us, and she looks over at me. She's like, Dad, who the heck is Melchizedek? And I'm like, well, we're going to find out this morning, okay? So this is, this is what this is all about. We're going to look at and understand um, this, this person of Melchizedek. But I, I, I promise you, what, what God's word has for us this morning is a little bit more of kind of the deep waters Right? It's a little bit more kind of intellectual and that sort of thought, but I promise you this, it doesn't stop there. Like As we understand who Melchizedek was and then what that means for us today, it's not just some head thing that we're walking out with today. We're going to walk out with hopefully some practical encouragement that we can apply this week. Right? Like this is not what, what the, the author is not just trying to uh, puff up or sort of give them some more knowledge. What he's trying to do, again, Picture what I just said. That fire is going out. He's trying to put some fuel on the fire, and he's using this person, this picture of Melchizedek to do so. And so this is the log that's going on this morning. It's all about Melchizedek, and we're going to see that Jesus uh, was better than uh, Melchizedek. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask the passage. We're going to ask the text kind of three questions, and uh, we're going to walk through it. But, but the first is, who was Melchizedek? What does he teach us about Jesus, and why does it matter today. That's where we're going. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Uh, here's the first question. Who was Melchizedek? All right. Who was Melchizedek? We're in Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 1. It says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high guy, God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. Okay. This is referencing back to something that where we first see Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis. And so what I want to do is just show us, let's just see where we first meet or are introduced to Melchizedek. And my Bible has this ribbon that's conveniently placed in Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17, um, it says this. It says, after his return from the defeat of uh, Chedor the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
And he was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is where we first meet Melchizedek. Let me just give you a little context on what we just read there. Uh, we, we, we meet in Genesis this uh, guy named Abram. Later, he's known as Abraham, um, but he's Abram, and, and he has a nephew, Lot, and they've been, uh, God visited and, 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 and met with him and, and gave him this, this incredible promise, this incredible plan, and so they've been kind of following God where, where he has been leading them, and uh, as they've been traveling along, their herds have sort of grown a little bit, and their households are growing a little bit, and so what they decided to do Abram and Lot was to separate and to uh, get a little further away so they had some more space. Well, Lot gets in a bit of trouble, and he's taken captive by these kings. This is uh, that name there that uh, Chedel Lamor is, uh, it's the king of Elam, and, uh, and he is taken captive. And so uh, Abram uh, grabs some of his strongest men, and he goes and he uh, does kind of battle with these kings, and he rescues Lot and brings him back. And so that's what's happened. It says, after the return of the defeat, the kings who were with him there, the king of Sodom, they went out to meet him. And that's where we see, verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is our only reference. Okay, so you're like, I don't know if I've ever heard of this guy, Melchizedek. If you haven't read this passage, and then there's one other passage I'm going to show you in a second, or Hebrews uh, 5 and 7, then there's no other mention of him anywhere else in Scripture. See, because this has happened about 2000 B.C., so what we do is if we fast forward about a thousand years to when David was, was uh, writing some psalms, the name comes up again. It shows up in Psalm 110. Now, just to give us a little bit of a running start at it, Psalm 110 is all about Jesus, okay? If you want to write that down or kind of make a note there in your Bible, Psalm 110, all about Jesus. But what we see here in verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Uh, there's something happening in the original language that we kind of get some indications of in our English uh, translation, but notice it says, Lord, all caps, says to my Lord. That's the Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, and he's speaking. So what we have here is this conversation between Yahweh and Adonai, it's, it's, it's Christ. And so he's speaking to the Messiah that is to come. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, then we skip down to verse 4. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, 2000 BC, we first meet Melchizedek. He shows up on the scene, leaves as quickly as he came on. A thousand years later, we have this little obscure reference from David that Jesus, the Messiah, they didn't know his name yet, right? But the Messiah was going to be after or in the order of Melchizedek. So now we go all the way back to where we are in Hebrews. Now the author of Hebrews is writing to the people, trying to put that log of encouragement on the fire. And he says, you need to understand something about Jesus. He is a great high priest, and he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And again, I said this is deep waters, because if you remember a few weeks ago when we first did it, he kind of goes on a little bit of a detour, and he says, I want to tell you all about this, but you're, you're, you're kind of slow to understand, you're dull of hearing, and so you're not, you're not able to comprehend yet, because uh, you're still eating mac and cheese and drinking warm hot chocolate, right? I want more for you. If you understood this, this would be fuel for your fire. 
And so now he returns back and he's like, let me tell you about Melchizedek and why this is helpful. So who was Melchizedek? Or as my daughter said, who the heck is Melchizedek? Uh, He was a real historical person. That's the first thing that we need to understand is that Melchizedek is a real historical person. Uh, some commentators or some, some have tried to kind of explain away and say like he was maybe a, a pre-incarnation of Jesus or he's an angel. But I, I really believe that the text and what we have here, uh, best understanding, best presentation is that he actually was a real person. And, and it says there that he was um, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. A couple things that we understand about him. Well, he was a king and it says he was a priest of the most high God. So as a real historical figure, he was a king. Uh, his name actually means my king is righteous, or kind of the way that we would say it is uh, the king of righteousness. So even his name says the king of righteousness, and he was the king of Salem. Uh, some think, or most think, that, that Salem is actually Jerusalem, right? It's the same root word of the word shalom. And so we have here the king of righteousness, who is the king of Salem. Salem comes from the word shalom, which is peace. He's the king of peace. Is that kind of setting off any sort of alarm bells? Like, do you, does that ring a bell anywhere? We, we see Jesus later is referred to as the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. And so here we have the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He comes out and he meets with Abram and he brings bread and wine. That's interesting too, right? That he greeted him with bread and wine, not uh, something else or any other number of combinations, but bread and wine. And he gives him this blessing, and then Abram responds by tithing from the spoils of what he has just gone. So he's a real historical uh, person. But what's unique about him is that he was both a king and a priest. We don't really see this anywhere else. And we've talked a little bit about this already, but we're going to dig into this a little bit more today. Is that he was a king, so he ruled civically, but he was also a priest, which meant he led spiritually as well. And it says that he was a priest of the Most High God. I think the understanding on this, right, if, if you know the story of Noah, Noah, it says, loved God, served God, worshiped God. In the same way um, that Noah knew the God of creation, Melchizedek knows the God of creation. He doesn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that way, right? But it's the same God. It's the God of creation that he's worshiping. It says that he was a priest. He knew he followed God. Now, we don't have a context on how he became a priest. We just know that he was one. Right? And so scripture says that he was a priest, and, and we should probably understand what's that, what that means. Uh, what did a priest do? Well, a priest uh, served in an official capacity, and their primary function was to help people get to God. So the primary thing that a priest did was to get people to God. And, and that's really helpful for us today. We have to understand that a priest helps get people to God. You think about a chef, what does a chef do? Cooks, yes, great. We're, 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 we're really tracking. Okay, so a chef cooks. This is a participation, right? You can, you can be a part of this, right? Um, and uh, uh, Let's see, what did I got here? Um, uh, janitor, what does a janitor do? Clean. Clean, all right, yeah, now we got it. Uh, what does a comedian do? Tells jokes, probably not dad jokes, but jokes that make you laugh, right? Uh, what does a priest do? Gets people to God, okay? A priest gets people to God. That is the primary function of what this priest is doing. And so Melchizedek shows up on the, on the scene right in front of Abraham. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get Abram to God. That's his job as a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God. And so he's a real person. He's a king, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, peace. And he's a priest trying to help get people to God. That's the first thing we need to understand about Melchizedek. The second thing 
and this is, if we don't get this, then we kind of miss everything, is it was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. He was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. See, there's tons of pictures and symbols and all sorts of things that, that the Bible is full of. The Old Testament has all sorts of things, right? You think about um, the blood that was put over the doorpost at Passover. That was a symbol of Jesus' blood, which would allow for the passing over of sins committed. Right? You have the Passover lamb, that, that perfect sacrifice. Again, a foreshadow of Jesus being a perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice that was going to come someday. I mean, you can, there's so many symbols. Even, even the way that the people of God were, were led out of captivity, right? And God made a way where there was no way. He parted the Red Sea and he led people out of a place of slavery. It's, again, a picture for what he wants to do in our hearts spiritually we are in captivity spiritually. We are bound to sin. We are dead in our sin. And he wants to lead us out of that. He made a way through Jesus and he leads his people through that to a place of salvation, right? Of promise. There's so many foreshadowing pictures that we have in the Old Testament. So Melchizedek, even though it's only a couple of verses, Melchizedek was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Um, hopefully you got your Bible open. I don't have it on the screen, but if you look back at, at chapter 7 in Hebrews, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, Abraham returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham uh, apportioned a tenth of everything, and he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, right? We already talked about that. And then he is the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. We talked about that. And he is without father or mother or genealogy. All right, here's, here, let's make sure we understand what this means. It doesn't mean that he literally did not have a dad or a mom. What it means is, is we just read like how the introduction to Melchizedek. There was none, right? So we don't know who his mom or dad was. If you wanted to be a priest in the Jewish Levitical system, you had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi. You were not a priest if you did not descend from Levi. You could not be a high priest if you didn't descend from Aaron. So you have the tribe, right? The, all of uh, kind of the, the whole tribe. But then Aaron, the line of Aaron was the high priest. We don't know who Melchizedek's mother or father is. And so it's a shadow, a foreshadow of Jesus. What does that mean um, with that? Well, it means that Jesus was born, and we're going to actually come to this here in a second. He descended from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And so it says Jesus is a priest, so he didn't have the genealogy. It doesn't mean he didn't have a mom or dad. We know who Jesus' mom and dad was, but it means that he didn't have the genealogy to back up or to prove that he belonged to be a priest. It was based solely on the call of God. It says resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest uh, forever. That's the next thing is that um, he uh, had no priestly genealogy that's one of the ways he foreshadows Jesus. Another way he foreshadows Jesus is there was no beginning or end to him. Again, not that he wasn't born, not that he didn't die, but when the author says that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life, it means that it wasn't recorded for us. We don't know. It gives this sense of kind of like, well, when did that start? Right? When did that end? We don't know. It's kind of this ongoing ministry, and it's saying in the same way Jesus, or more fulfilling of Jesus, is that his priesthood is eternal. It had no beginning. It has no end. That's just who he is. Amen. So it's a foreshadow of Jesus's no beginning and no end, and it's a picture of the work that he has done. Again, no one has ever even seen this, I don't believe, until it's presented here. Do you know that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, 
is the only book in our Bible that talks about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ? Did you know that? That's not in any of the other epistles. So Paul didn't write about it. Peter didn't write about it. That's not anywhere else except for Hebrews. So if we don't have this passage of Scripture, then there is no connection. I don't know that any of us are going to go back and find this little obscure passage about Melchizedek and then see Psalm 110, verse 4, and then say, look at how great this is. This is the fulfillment of prophecy thousands of years later. This is who Jesus is. But what it's trying to show us is this, is that there are so many pictures throughout the Old Testament that teach us about Jesus, okay? So he's a real historical figure, and he's a foreshadow of Jesus. If you've got that, then you understand who Melchizedek is, all right? That's the biggest thing that we need to kind of walk away from and know. And again, if it weren't for this passage or for the book of Hebrews, we would know nothing about the priestly ministry of Jesus. So the next question that we want to ask the text is this. What does he, Melchizedek, what does he teach us about Jesus? So we understand who he was. Well, what's the big deal then, right? How does this help us? How does this foreshadow Jesus? Well, let's read in the passage together. I've already read uh, the first few verses. We can put them uh, up there on the screen. Beginning in verse, uh, let's say three. Um, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4 continues, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take their tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are descended from Abraham. But this man, who did not have a descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but by the other case, by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, and he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, I know, I know. There's a lot there. You're like, oh boy, okay. Here's the thing. There's a, there's a lot here, but there, I'm telling you, there is some really cool pictures that we have in this. So what does he teach us? What does Melchizedek teach us about Jesus? Let me help break it down for us here. Uh, the first is this. Uh, Jesus is a priest for all people. Melchizedek shows us that Jesus is a priest for all people. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Remember, it says that he met Abraham, and he wasn't a descendant of Aaron. I mean, Aaron is going to come. He's one of the descendants of, of Abraham, right? So Aaron hasn't even come along yet. What you have here is this, this provision by God. He just came back from this war. He has this, uh, these kind of spoils from, from this battle, and, and he receives a blessing and then has a place to give his tithe to provided to him by God himself. And what we see here is that Jesus, in the same way or in a similar way, in a better way, is a priest for all people. What do priests do again? Do we remember? Oh, come on. Don't make me do the whole chef and janitor thing again, right? Chef cleans, or cooks, right? Janitor cleans. Yeah, see, you messed me up. Um, and then a priest gets people to God. So what does a priest do? There we go. Now we're going. So a priest gets people to God. So Melchizedek, you know, may have been a good priest, may have not. We don't know all that, but we know that he helped get Abraham to God. Jesus is the high priest that can help get all people to God. It says that he is able to save. 
If you, if you if we go back and look uh, back in, in, in Scripture, it says in, in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you skip ahead and look at verse 25 of chapter 7, it says, consequently, he is able to save from the uttermost to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. See, here's what we have to understand, or what Melchizedek helps teach us about Jesus, that Jesus is a priest. He helps get people to God for all people. In fact, he is the only way that all people can get to God. That is who Jesus Christ is. And so we have this picture here of that. Second thing that we learn from Melchizedek is that Jesus is a priest who reigns and saves. Again, this is like kind of this mixing that you just wouldn't have seen. This wasn't common. And so as uh, the, the, the church would have received this, and they're like, wait a second, Jesus is a high priest and a king, or Melchizedek was a high priest and a, or a priest and a king. Those two didn't go together. Those were two different offices. And we've talked a little bit about this, but you have the ruling office, right? The civic ruler of the king, and then you have the priest getting people to God, and those were separate positions, no other place in scripture other than Melchizedek and Jesus are those two things combined. And so you have to understand that Jesus is a priest, but he's not just any priest. He's a priest who reigns, who rules, who's the king, and he's a priest who is able to save. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's a king and a savior. Third thing, Jesus is a priest forever. He's a priest forever. See, now this was super important, right? Because the priest would have been everything uh, to Jewish people. Like, this is how you get to God. But the thing is, is that priests only were in office or only were in their position for so long. In fact, I learned that, that they only served from the ages of 25 to 50. Once you hit 50, you were done. And so there were so many of them because sometimes, you know, a priest might die or he'd kind of age out, and so they needed a whole bunch of priests to be able to be there. Well, Jesus comes along, and he's, he doesn't have a timestamp. There's no expiration on his service. He is able to serve in this position for all of time. It says that having neither beginning of days nor end of life resembles the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is a priest forever. Fourth thing, uh, Jesus is a priest who is great and greatly blesses. Did you pick up what happened when Melchizedek went and met Abraham? He gave him this blessing, right? We read it in Genesis 14. I'm not gonna read it again, but he gave him this blessing, and he says, great are you, and great is God, and greatly to be praised. But, but notice what the author of Hebrews says. It says that this man who does not have his descendant from him received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The idea is, is that Melchizedek was this important figure, right? He, he mattered. And as priest and as king, he had something special to bestow upon Abraham. He was superior, and he had something to give to the inferior, right? If you're a father and you wanted to uh, really uh, encourage your child you could give your child a blessing. And that comes out in all sorts of different ways. I mean, it's not like a big, like you could do that even today. You could bless your child by the things that you say or what you kind of instill into them. We see this throughout scripture, but, but what, what, what's so special about that? 
What's so special about a dad blessing his son or daughter? Well, it's because, like, dad is, I mean, dad, like, that's, that's the coolest ever, right? And, and, and he's saying something kind of special into me, and so there's this blessing that comes. See, the thing that we see is that Melchizedek does this to Abraham. How much more so does Jesus, who's great, right, not a descendant of man, He's great. He can bless greatly. You know, so many times I think we forget all the ways that God has blessed. You know, maybe even as we're sitting here now, it might be a helpful exercise to just think in your mind, like, what today can you be thankful for that God has blessed you with? Right? I mean, there's provision. There's protection. There's relationship. There's forgiveness. There's encouragement. There's strength. I mean, there's so many things, right? If we were to go around the room, I'm sure if you know Jesus today, you can state specifically some ways, even today or even this week, how he has blessed you. You see, Jesus is great and he blesses greatly. He gives freely in the same way that Abraham received a blessing, we receive blessing from Jesus. And fifth, Jesus is a priest who is worthy of our first and best. Notice the response that, that Abraham has here. It says that, that he took to him uh, the tithe. Tithe literally means tenth. He, he gave him a portion of what he had just received. And he brought that before this king and gave it to him. And the idea is that he gave it to him uh, as if he was giving it unto the Lord. And again, we don't have all, you're like, well, how does that work exactly? I don't, we don't know. <laughs> there's, not, there's not anything more than that other than it blessed God when he did that. That was the right response. It was the right response to give to this king of righteousness, this king of peace, the first and best of what he had just received. So what does that teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that Jesus is worth our first and our best. How many times, right, do we, maybe if we're not intentional, that we give Jesus what's left over? If we're speaking financially, which is one of the primary ways that this is applied, right, how many times is it maybe let's see what's left at the end of the month and then we'll kind of make that decision? But the thing is, like sometimes people don't know what to do. Like what do we do with the tithe? Well, here's the thing. Tithe is not just something that existed in the law. There was no law at this point. This predates the law. In fact, I would say that the tithe is actually wired into creation. You see from the early days what were the people doing. They were bringing their first and their best before God. And so here we have an example of, of someone bringing their first, their best, a portion of what it was as worship unto the Lord. And we understand that, that what we have, everything in it, is ultimately from the Lord. Right? Like you might say, well, I've worked hard for this. And we're talking about our money. Right? I've, I've worked hard, like I put in the time, I put in the, well, where did you get the energy to do that? Right? Where did you get the skill set to do that? Where did you get the know-how to do that? You were made by a creator, and your creator wired you to be able to do that, and he's given you the ability to do that. So everything that we have, everything that exists is ultimately from the Lord, and so what Jesus deserves is a portion of that. It's our first and our best. You know, we don't preach about tithing every week here. If this is your first week with, come back next week. I don't think we're talking about tithing next week, uh, but, but we are talking about it this week. Why? Because it's right here. And so if we skip over this and we say, well, this doesn't have anything, here's the thing is that it is good for us to give back to the Lord a portion of what he has given to us. 
And so one of the ways that we do that today is through the church. We see that example in Acts. It says that they sold their goods and they were bringing their possessions. They were laying it down before the leaders of the church. They're not giving it to the leaders. They're giving it to God through the church. That's one of the ways that that happens. And so listen, it is such a great spot as a pastor to be able to stand before you and say, like, we're not trying to make budget, okay? I mean, we have a budget. We want to make it, but we're not behind. We're not hurting. We're not in that spot. What I'm telling you today is not for our behalf. It's for your behalf. Like when you respond rightly to the Lord and you give him your first and your best, you're responding to him in worship in a way that he deserves. And so here we have this great picture of Abraham responding in this way, giving Melchizedek this, and Jesus all the more receives our first and best. And that's not something that just happens financially, right? He gets the first and the best of our time. You know, the moment, the way that we begin our day, it matters. The way that we begin our week, it it matters, right? The way that we serve him. I mean, he's given you time, talent, treasure. How are you giving back to him a portion of what he's giving? He's not asking for all of it. In fact, he's letting you keep most of it. He just wants a portion back. But he's looking for our first and for our best. We do that as an act of worship. So these are three things that we see, or sorry, five things that we see about Jesus in the person of Melchizedek. He's a priest for all people. He's a priest who reigns and who saves He's a priest forever, right? There is no end to his priestly office. And he's a priest who's great and greatly blesses. And he's a priest who's worthy of our first and our best. Well, let's just ask the third question. Why does that matter today? Why is it important that we understand this in our life today? I think first we have to understand, well, why was that important for the people that first received this letter, right? Why was it important for them in their day well, as I said, he's trying to put a log on their fire, right? Rekindle this passion for the Lord, a right understanding of who God is. And so he said, listen, part of the reason that you're not able to worship in the way that you once did is because you don't know, you've forgotten, or maybe you never learned just how great a high priest Jesus is. There's so much here. I, I, I'm going to read through it. We don't have it all on the screen, but I'm just going to read through the next several verses, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to try and break it down as I go. But again, we're not going to get through every nuance, everything. This is a great passage to study later, but I want us to understand how does this matter for today. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people had received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? To rephrase that, if the priesthood of Aaron had been enough... Right? Why would Jesus have had to come? Or why would, as David wrote in Psalm 110, why would it have been about like, that you will, uh, that, that the Lord swore, they promised, that he made an oath that there would be a priest that would come in the order of Melchizedek? Well, it's because of the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood. It wasn't doing what it needed to do. Verse 12, for when there was a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That makes sense. Right? With priests changing, that the law then changes or a different expression or kind of nuance of that might, might, might come. But for one who these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended, we talked about this, from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It's so interesting. You know, we talked about pictures that there is in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaac had, or rather Jacob had uh, 12 sons, right? Uh, Aaron, or um, Levi being one of them. 
Uh, Judah was another one of the sons. There's a story told about when uh, the, the sons go and they, they meet with Joseph and, and, um, and they were, their younger brother, Benjamin, was, was um, and threatened his life was going to be taken or he was going to be put into prison. And Judah stepped in and says, don't take him, take me instead. That's who Jesus descends from. That's, like, I guess, again, another picture. How does Jesus do that? He steps in. Don't take him. Take me instead. And so he's a descendant of Judah, not of, not of, the, 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 uh, of the tribe of Aaron where, or Levi, where priests would typically come from, but he was from Judah, which means that he received, as we already talked about, his priestly duty by a call from God specifically. Verse 15, this becomes even more present when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, right? It's what we just said, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God himself has declared that Jesus is a priest. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. There's not mincing words there, all right? That's talking about the Old Testament, the Levitical law. What does this verse tell us about the Levitical law? It says that it's weakless, weakness and useless. Weak and useless. That is some harsh language. Why? It says, for the law made nothing perfect. Okay, well, I guess that's, <laughs> that would make it weak and useless if it made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. When it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath, by whom the one is said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. He's saying most priests, or all priests rather, were just made priests because of who they were. But this priest, Jesus, and Melchizedek were made priests because of this oath, this swearing of God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A guarantee is only as good as its guarantor, right? Right? If you have a product at home and it's got a warranty or some sort of guarantee on it, if that company ceases to exist, right, you call the number on it and it just goes to, uh, you know, it says this number is no longer in service, right? How good is the guarantee? It's not good, right? The answer is none, none good. Uh, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He makes a guarantee and because he's the guarantor, you can count on it. There is validity in this statement. The warranty is good here. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death, continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He doesn't need many. He's there forever. There's no expiration. We talked about this. And so he's able to do that forever. Verse 25, this is where it's all going to. He says all this to say this. Consequently, right? All that I've said, I'm trying to get you to understand this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Unlike the priest, he doesn't die. Unlike the priest, he's not limited by who he is. Unlike them, he is able to intercede directly for you before the Father. And it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily First for his own sins. That's what the priests had to do. They had to go sacrifice for themselves so that they could even be clean enough to do what they needed to do on behalf of the people. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have sin that needs sacrificing for. Since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness, 
as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son of God who has been made perfect forever. Okay, here's why this matters today. Two things. If you hear anything, hear this. The first is this, that our religious duty leads to worry and doubt. He is trying to tell them. He says, listen, you have been raised up according to the law. There are hundreds of commandments that you have been told to keep. And what Jesus has told us is that we are not going to be saved by keeping that. What do we think of the law? It's weak and it's useless. Why? Because it doesn't get us to God. And I'm telling you, still today, what we're trying to do, we've replaced that law with a new law. And there are things that you're doing, that I do, that we try and do out of religious duty to get ourselves to God. And it's never going to get us there. Let me kind of illustrate it uh, this way. I've got this ladder back here. And this is so many times what I think we try and do is that we go to church, right? We try and be a nice person. We try and take care of uh, you know, others around us and do different things. I know you're nervous. That's okay. That's, that's the whole point, all right? This isn't a very safe plan. But what we do is we're trying to get closer to God. And we're doing all these things, and we think, well, maybe I can, if I just do this, or I can do this. But here's the thing. We get up all the way to the top. And how much closer am I than you? Answer, not very right? I've made it all the way to the top. This is all the further religion is going to get me. My religious duty is only going to carry me this high, but I have so much further to go. And so here's the thing you need to understand is that if you are living out your religious obligations, you're trying to do it through your own works, your own efforts, you're only going to get so high. It's never going to be enough. And so if you're living out a religion Here's the thing is that that's going to lead toward worry and doubt and rightfully so because it's a faulty thing to stand upon. What he's trying to say is, listen, Jesus gave us this Levitical law and it served a purpose, but the ultimate purpose was this, is that it was going to show us that it was never able to save apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, that is what he's trying to say. So our religious duty leads to worry and doubt Right? On one hand, the former command is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Here's the second truth, is that our relational response brings hope and confidence. Notice what Jesus says. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost who? Those who draw near to God. It's a belief It's a response to God. It's a relational response. And that responding to Jesus and who he is brings the hope and confidence that we so desperately need. You know, we are all, we all fall short in our ability to uphold the law. Let's do this. We got just a couple minutes. So can I just ask you to do this real quick? Can you just stand up? Let's just see how useless the law is. Just go ahead and stand up. We're just going to do a quick quiz. We're going to kind of test ourselves against the Ten Commandments and see how we've done against upholding the law, okay? Uh, Ready for this? Honesty in church, all right? It's Father's Day. How many of us have failed to, as the Ten Commandments say, honor our mother and father at all times? Have we ever failed to honor mother and father? Sit down if you have. You can be honest. If you've always shown honor to your mother and father, that's fine. Uh, Sit down if you've ever stolen anything, taken something that wasn't yours. And that includes time right? That includes like a candy bar. That includes, 
How about, uh, oh wait, I, I didn't even make it through. I had like three or four down, okay? I didn't have all 10. I, next was going to be lie, okay? So that was for sure going to get any of us, right? Have you ever told an untruth, right? Have you ever shaded the truth or, or kind of kept the truth? Look, we didn't get very far, did we? See, here's the point. The point is this, is that the law fails to save. It brings worry and doubt. But Jesus, he is able to do what? To save to the uttermost. Listen, in your lifetime, you have and will continue to fail God so many times. And we all have the same story. That's my story. That's your story. We fail according to the law. But Jesus never did. And because he never did, and because he's our high priest, and because he's interceding on our behalf, our relational response to him, our belief in him, brings us into this position, this place, because of what God is, he's able to save to the uttermost. And I want to just tell you that there is nothing that you are unable to be saved of from Jesus Christ. That's what uttermost means. It means to the fullest extent that there's nothing left untouched, that that is what Jesus is doing, that he is able to, to save you, those who draw near to God through him. And he lives always to make intercession for him. That means that he is interceding on our behalf. And so any time that the law comes up, hey, whoa, whoa, wait, they, fa- they failed there. He failed there. She failed there. And then Jesus is like, I paid for that. Right? My, my blood covers that. My perfection is, 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 is over that. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. And I just want to tell you today, it's not enough just to know, but you have to respond. You have to draw near. You have to receive. If I was to give you a gift, at what point would that gift be yours? It's the moment that you take it, right? That's what belief is. It's receiving the gift that God has given you. And some of you, maybe that's the decision that you need to make today is you need to receive this relational gift that God has given you. He's invited you in. There's so much more we could say about this. We're out of time, but all of what the Old Testament, this Levitical law was, was to keep God at this distance, right? To put the, and what he's saying is, no, 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 a way has been made open. Now you can draw near. You can come close. You can be near this God. And so you don't need this to get there. You need Jesus, and he's going to take you all the way. Rather, he's come down to you. That's what the good news of the gospel says, is that Jesus has drawn near to you, so we respond by drawing near to him, and we do it so through belief. Listen, church, this is the log that needs to go on our fire. This is what Melchizedek teaches. Jesus was a better high priest who blew the Aaronic priests out of the water, right? The Melchizedekian, you never thought you'd hear that word, but the Melchizedekian order of priesthood of Jesus was so much better. Why? Because it says the word of the oath, which came later in the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Our right response upon reading that would be to Respond in worship, respond in praise and thanksgiving, knowing that we have a hope and a confidence in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So church, let's do that together. Let me invite you to bow your heads in prayer and then we're gonna respond in worship. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of hope that you give us in your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this. Lord, when the coals when the embers are fading, God, that there would be a reminder of your power as our perfect high priest, the interceder on our behalf, the guarantor. Jesus, we look to you and we thank you for the hope that you offer. God, thank you that it's not up to us because 
as we've already said, we, we fail. We probably can't make it through this day, Lord, without failing. Lord, thank you that when we fail, you are still faithful. Lord, when we are imperfect, your, your perfect power intercedes on our behalf. And so, Jesus, we receive what you have given to us. In faith, we believe. God, it's by grace that you have made this available to us. And so, Jesus, we look to you and to you alone, knowing that only you are able to save. Jesus, thank you for this truth. Would it, would it encourage our souls this morning? God, would you stoke the fire of our hearts, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.